Well, uh, good evening, everyone. Hope you've had a nice day so far. We had an interesting start to our morning. Uh, I wasn't uh, at home at the time. I was preaching at 9am church, but uh, my wife Emily tells me that our two-year-old Samuel wanted to play with the microwave, so he got a Volkswagen Beetle die-cast model, stuck it in the microwave and turned the microwave on while Emily was brushing uh, our girl's hair and uh, a little fire started, but the house didn't burn down, so that's nice. Now let me uh, pray and we'll move on to more important things. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that you are a God who speaks. We thank you, Father, that you speak clearly in your word. And you, uh, we pray uh, this evening that you'll help us to understand the things that you say and that by your spirit you will help us to live for you and to become more like Jesus, your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, we're coming to that uh, time of the year where people start to recommit to their exercise routines. Uh, Summer is around the corner, and everybody knows now that they can't hide themselves in layers of winter clothing. It's all out there for people to see. And so out come the runners. This is the time of year where you see people start running uh, early in the morning. Uh, It's a time of year where the active wear comes out of the cupboard if you're that way inclined. And if you go to a gym, it's this time of year where it starts to get busy, where there's lots and lots of more people who turn up uh, as they chase that elusive summer bod that that the media keeps telling us that we have to have. And so now is this time of recommitment. See, now is at the time of renewed diets and uh, renewed exercise routines, at least for the next three weeks, because that's how long people normally last. And that's the thing when it comes to human commitment and recommitment. We can be so fickle. Uh, We we can be so short-lived in our commitments. And it happens uh, every year, every new year, when we have those kind of New Year's resolutions that we make. Uh, And I don't know what you guys are like, uh, for those of you who are still in high school or just out of high school, but I can remember when I was in high school, every single year from year 7 to year 12, at the beginning of the year, I said to myself, now is the year that I'm going to work really hard in school. Now is the year that I'm going to apply myself and make sure I get good marks. Uh, And every year I last about two to three weeks and that's the end of it. Uh, But that's what we can be like. You see, we we have good intentions. Uh, We start with this kind of great enthusiasm and this great zeal and yet the flame quickly dies. And at one level, when it comes to uh, summer bods and uh, New Year's resolutions, well, you know, who cares? Those things don't ultimately matter, but but work hard at school, don't hear me saying otherwise. Uh, But when it comes to to truly important things in life, like the commitments we make to our friends and our families, uh, and when it comes to the commitments that we make as Christians uh, to living with Jesus as our King, well then commitments matter greatly. And when we fail in those kinds of commitments, well then renewing our commitments becomes really important. And this is what we'll see with the people of God in Nehemiah chapter 9 and chapter 10 this evening. You see, they have failed in their commitment to God. Uh, We've seen Israel fail. They face judgment. They've been sent to Babylon. They face judgment for their lack of commitment. And now they they need to renew their commitment to live for God. And if you remember from two weeks ago uh, in Nehemiah chapter 8, the focus of the rest of the book of Nehemiah is now on the restoration of God's people. You see, that's the focus. Uh, the, the city, Jerusalem, now has, 
has been somewhat restored. Uh, if you remember from the book of Ezra, the temple, that's been rebuilt. Uh, the wall, as we've looked through Nehemiah, that's now been rebuilt and the people are safe because of the wall. But now, on the, now the focus is on the restoration of the people themselves. Uh, that's what we see through the rest of Nehemiah. And what we see in Nehemiah 9 and 10 tonight is the confession of the people of God leading to the renewed commitment of the people of God. Uh, so that's what we'll see tonight. Uh, so let's uh, jump in and have a look. Make sure you've got your Bible there in front of you. If you don't, you'll fly, fly blind. So make sure you've got it there. So Nehemiah chapter 9. And have a look there, verse 1, the very first verse. Look at what we read. It's now the 24th day of the seventh month. And again, if you remember uh, two weeks ago to chapter 8, it was the first day of the seventh month of the year. That's where chapter 8 starts. And as they read the book of the law in chapter 8, they read about this thing called the festival, uh, the, the festival of the booths. Uh, and that's happened now. They, they celebrated that from the, the 15th day of the seventh month to the 21st day of the seventh month as it was written. And looking into verse 1, they've done that. And now as they were assembled, verse 1 again, they were fasting, wearing sackcloth, and had put dust on their heads. Uh, which really means that Israel was in this state of grief and repentance. Which again is right. Because if you remember back to chapter 8 from a couple of weeks ago, as they read from the Word of God, they realized their sinfulness. They, they realized as they read from the book of the law that they weren't keeping the book of the law. They weren't living God's way. That they had actually abandoned and been unfaithful to their faithful God. But notice what they're doing in verse 3. Have a look at verse 3. While they stood in their places... They read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day, so for about three hours or so, and they spent another fourth of the day, another three hours, in confession and worship of the Lord their God. And uh, sometimes we complain about our, our 15 long services. Six hours worth of church is what's happening here. But what I want you to notice is that as the people spent time in the Word of God, it led to them both confessing the praises of God and also confessing their sin before God. Uh, that's what we'll see in chapter 9. And that's what happens when we read the Word of God. Often, as we read the Word of God, what we see is how great God is. That, that's what the Word of God does. It, it points us to who God is and how great He is and how worthy of praise He is. But on the other hand, it shows us often how sinful we are and how other compared to God we are. And uh, we won't have uh, time to look through all of chapter 9 in detail, otherwise this will be a six-hour service. But what I want us to notice from chapter 9 is what God is like. And as we see what God is like, the only thing we can do is praise Him in light of that and to see what the people of Israel are like. And again, we'll see as we, we see what they're like, well, that can only lead to confession of sin before God. Uh, so that's what we're going to do now. So firstly, what God is like. And you might have uh, noticed as Benny read it for us, but, but chapter 9, it's really this, this sweeping history of all that God had done so far up until that point in Israel's history as a nation. So just look at it. We're going to rush through it, through it very quickly. But verse 6, have a look in verse 6. Verse 6, 
the, the, the Levites, they say this. They say, you, God, created the heavens and the earth. And it's you, God, who gave life to all things. In other words, it's, it's acknowledging that God is creator. And then look at verse 7. You, God, chose Abram. And verse 8, you made a covenant, a promise with Abram. Uh, that is, you called the nation of Israel to yourself. You chose Abram. And you made Abram, Abraham, which means the father of many. You made him into a numerous nation. That's what God did in the Old Testament. Then verses 9 to 12, have a look, verses 9 to 12. You, God, saw the oppression of the descendants of Abraham under the rule of Egypt. And what did you do? You rescued them. And verse 10, you performed unimaginable signs and wonders in Egypt. And verse 11, you divided the sea for Israel so that they could walk out of Egypt. You rescued the people of Israel. So the whole Exodus event is what's in view there. And then look at verse 13. Verse 13, you, God, gave Israel your good law, your good word on how they were to live now as your redeemed, saved people for their good. And here's the thing. Even when Israel so quickly grumbled against God, well, what did God do? Have a look at verse 18. Make sure you look down at verse 18. Even after Israel had cast an image of a calf for themselves and said, this, this golden calf, this ludicrous golden calf that we had made, after they had said that this is the God who brought you out of Egypt, what did God do? Verse 19, you, God, did not abandon Israel because of your great compassion. And if that's not uh, just incredible enough, verse 21, what did God do? He provided for them even though they grumbled, even though they betrayed him and started worshipping this golden calf. You see, that is what God is like. He is incredible. And again, we don't have the time to look at it in detail, but if you were to read on in chapter 9, you would see that God again and again in this sweep of history is compassionate and gracious and faithful. And even though Israel are unfaithful and they abandon God, what does God do? He keeps his promises. He keeps his word to Abraham and he loves his people. He does what he says and promises he will do. And if you go back to the beginning of chapter 9, you see, no wonder at the beginning of chapter 9 in verse 5, the Levites, what do they say? They say to the people, have a look at verse 5, they say, stand up and do what? Well, praise Yahweh your God. Praise him from everlasting to everlasting because what else can you do in light of who God is? You see, a confession of praise to God is all one can do in light of who God is and what He's done in this sweeping history. But in realizing how great God is, the people of Israel here realize how sinful they have been in chapter 9. You see, what are the people like? Well, look at verse 16. They are a stiff-necked people. And they, verse 17, refuse to listen and remember the wonders of God. And they, verse 26, go down to verse 26, they were disobedient and they rebelled against God. And if that's not bad enough, what do they do? They killed God's prophets whom God had sent for them, for their sake, to warn them to turn back to God. And verse 29, what did they, Israel, do? Well, verse 29, they acted arrogantly. And they sinned against God's good ordinances and stubbornly refused and resisted 
God's good word. You see, if you read chapter 9 carefully, you see there's this, this strong contrast between the you, you, you of God and all the goodness of God and the they of Israel and of all their godlessness and their unfaithfulness. You see, what is God like? He is a faithful God and He never abandons His people. He always brings them back to Himself. And what are the people like? They are fickle. And they are short-lived in their faithfulness and they constantly abandon God. You see, that's what that sweep of history in chapter 9 points us to and shows us. And uh, let me give you uh, a silly and and somewhat ludicrous illustration uh, to make a greater point. Uh, Years ago, about uh, 12 years ago, uh, Emily, my wife and I, we moved into a little granny flat uh, in Carlton in in Plantenhurst Street. And uh, we moved there for about a year or so. And this was before we had kids. And uh, at that time, we had a cat, and this cat's name was Flash. He was our cat, Flash. And uh, he was about one at that time. He's a one-year-old cat. And he'd never been outdoors before. He was an indoors cat. We kept him indoors. But the granny flat was quite small, so we thought, look, why don't we let him outside so we can you know, stretch his legs and go for a bit of a run around and a bit of an explore. So we let him out for the first time. And I, uh, I remember very clearly and vividly going back uh, out to find him. It was, it was getting dark, it was night time, and I didn't want him to stay outside. So I went to go find him. And when I found him, he growled at me. Like, like a proper loud cat growl. If you've ever heard a cat growl properly, it's pretty loud. It's impressive from a little cat. And uh, he'd never done that before. And I've got this vivid picture in my mind. I still remember it very clearly. He was at the next door neighbor's front door. He was in the corner. And I had my light, my torch trying to look for him. And his eyes were all kind of all lit up. And he just growled at me. And uh, I remember just being quite shocked by it. I I didn't even know he was capable of it. Uh, And then I went to try to pick him up. And when I tried to pick him up, he scratched me all down my arms. And he scratched me down my legs. And I had blood dripping down my leg. And I remember feeling completely abandoned by my cat Flash. Uh, you know, I, I loved him, right? And I, and I cared for him, and I fed him, and sure, I didn't give birth to him, but I paid good money for him, all right? He was expensive. It was a lot of money for me. I was a young man. And yet, he was his cat, and he completely abandoned me. And I felt probably betrayed. I had like a feeling in my chest of my cat who was growling at me. Uh, We actually gave Flash away five years ago. Serves him right. (laughs) Now, it's a silly example, and it's a little bit ludicrous. But actually, when when you read these verses, when you read chapter 9, and you, you just see how loving and how caring God is to His people, let alone the fact that He made every single one of them, well, how can we even begin to imagine how great their betrayal of God is? You see, I felt betrayed by my stupid cat. And yet, here were the people of God abandoning the very one who gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And they know it. See, Israel know they've abandoned their God. See, look what they say in verse 33. Look down at verse 33. See, they confess their sins. They say, verse 33, You, God, are righteous concerning all that has come on us. Because you have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. Our kings, leaders, priests, and ancestors did not obey your law or listen to your commands and warnings you gave them. Verse 35, when they were in their kingdom with your abundant goodness that you gave them and in the spacious and fertile land you set before them, they would not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. You see, 
Israel know they have abandoned God. It's, it's stamped in history for everyone to see. You see, that's, that's what we need to remember as we read the Old Testament. It's, this is not some interesting fiction. It's not just some interesting story. These are the actions and behaviors of real people and a real nation. And this is how Israel had abandoned God over and over again. But it's also a real history in how God has remained faithful to His promises and faithful to His people over and over again. And so for the people of God here, it's not simply a confession of sins to God without any hope. No, what they do is they cast themselves upon the promises of God. You see, look at what they say in verse 32. Have a look down at verse 32. This is what they say. They say, So now our God, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God, who keeps His gracious covenant, do not view lightly all the hardships that have afflicted us. And have a look from verse 36. Verse 36, they say, Here we are today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could enjoy its fruit and its goodness. Here we are, slaves in it. Its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have sent over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please. We are in great distress. And it's interesting uh, in those verses that nowhere does Israel ask God to rescue them. See, in those verses, as they confess, nowhere do they ask God to remove the Persian king who ruled over them and was set above them. What they do is they simply bring their situation to God and cast themselves on Him, knowing that He keeps His gracious promises, trusting in His goodness. And at this point, it's so easy for us to, to look upon Israel and to look at their report card and think, Puh, you know, tisk, 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 Israel, look how bad you are. But it's the old illustration that when you have one finger pointing out, you have three fingers pointing back at yourself. See, it's the old trick we learn as kids where we go, oh, because they've done something so far worse than me, well, they're really bad, but I'm not that bad. And we can do that when we read the Old Testament. Look at Israel and go, well, they're really bad, but, but not me. Uh, our, our kids uh, over the years have enjoyed uh, early morning treats. And uh, what I mean by that is at about 5 a.m., one of our kids, uh, let's name them Sebastian, uh, he would uh, sneak into the kitchen to pinch chocolate or lollies or chips or whatever he could find while Emily and I were still in bed. And then what he'd do with his winnings is he'd rope one of his siblings in. Uh, let's call them Adele. And so uh, by the time Emily and I get up, there they are with chocolate kind of smeared on their face or lolly breath or whatever it is they've been eating. Uh, and and they're, completely, they're completely shocked that we know they've done something wrong. They can't imagine how we know they've been eating food, even though it's kind of chocolate all smudged on their face. And there's about 10 wrappers in the bin. If you ever steal food as a kid, don't put the wrappers in the bin because we find it. And every time we question them, one of them usually pipes up and says, oh, but, but, but he ate 20 chocolate pieces and I only ate 10, as if that somehow makes it better. But that's what we do in our sin. You see, that's what we do sometimes when we read the Old Testament. We look at Israel and we think, wow, they're so bad. Or that person over there, they're really bad, but, but not me. It's actually what we do in our sin. In our sin, we ignore our sin. But the Bible is, is really clear on this. See, here's what Romans chapter 3 says. It's up on the screen. It says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. 
all have turned away, all alike have become useless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. You see, that's what Nehemiah chapter 9 must remind us of. That's what the Old Testament must remind us of when we look at the failure of Israel. It should remind us of our sin. Not, not just pointing the finger at Israel and saying, look how bad they are. And, and by all means, we are to be appalled by their behavior. We are to look at the way that they've abandoned God and grieve their abandoning of God, but we are to be under no delusion that we are any better. And so like Israel, what we need to do, what chapter 9 teaches us to do, is to confess our sins. See, we need to come to God knowing that we have abandoned the very one who gives us life and breath and everything else. That's why we had a confession prayer before. But like Israel, we know, verse 17... That God is a forgiving God and a gracious and compassionate God who's slow to anger and rich in faithful love. And so in that sense, we too, we do what Israel does. We, we too, we cast ourselves upon the promises of God just like they did. But we do it knowing that God has actually fulfilled his promises in Jesus. You see, that's, that's the difference between us and Israel. We, we don't cry out to God like Israel did, looking forward to God fulfilling his promises. No, we look back at the cross of Jesus and see that God has kept his promises. He's done what he said he would do. He's done the hard bit. You see, for Israel, when you get to the end of chapter 9, and when they get to the end of their confession prayer, what they do is they just look forward in hope. But when we get to the end of our confession prayer, we say, thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, it's what we see in, in, in Romans chapter 7, isn't it? See, what does, Peter say, uh, what does Paul say in Romans chapter 7 about sin? He says, the good I want to do, I do not do. He, he struggles with sin. He says, no, I practice the evil I do not want to do. Paul knows the human plight. He knows our sin. And so how does Paul conclude? It's up there on the screen. He says, what a wretched man I am. He knows his sin. Who will rescue me from this body of death, and then he declares, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, Jesus rescues us from our sin that leads to death. He's done it. And that's, that's why he went to the cross. He went to the cross to pay for that sin. And we cast ourselves on the promises of God, not like Israel did looking forward, but actually knowing that God has kept his promises, and that he does forgive all those who trust in Jesus. And if you are someone here today who does not yet know of this forgiveness, Jesus offers it to you. And he offers forgiveness to all who put their faith in him. And maybe, maybe tonight you've realized for the first time that actually there is a creator God, and he has made us to live in a particular way, and actually all of us have abandoned him as our creator, as our God. And if that's you, please make sure you, you speak to me tonight or speak to Evan or speak to Troy or, or the person that brought you along before leaving. Know that Jesus offers forgiveness. Uh, but very uh, quickly, before we finish up, we'll have a very quick look at chapter 10 because chapter 10 has something important to teach us. Because the people's confession here in chapter 9, it's not just mere lip service. It's not cheap confession and repentance. You see, their confession before God leads to them renewing their commitment to God. 
And uh, this is uh, one of my dad's uh, best-loved objections to Christianity. Now, my dad's not a Christian, uh, sadly. I keep praying for him. I keep trying to share Jesus with him. But dad, dad hates the hypocrisy of the church, as he calls it. And uh, he, he likes, uh, this is his chief example, this is his best illustration. Uh, he likes to point to the mafia as an example, uh, or, or gangsters or mobsters. If you don't know what the mafia is, they're like gangsters and mobsters. And uh, uh, basically, because my dad's watched way too many mafia movies. But what he likes to do, he likes to point to the mafia and say, you know what the mafia is like? You know, they call themselves Christians. And there they are, they're in church, and they're doing all their prayer thing, and maybe they're shaking the priest's hand on the way out from church on a Sunday. And then in the very next scene in these mafia movies, what's the same guy doing? Well, on the Monday, the day after church, there he is with a machine gun in hand, kind of going kind of slaughtering dozens of people, uh, people. And then what does he do? Then he goes to church again the next day and he goes into the confession box and he asks the priest to forgive his sins and then somehow magically his sins are forgiven and all is well with the world. And dad says, well, you see, Christians are hypocrites. They say one thing, but they do another. And that's the example he likes to use, but that's because he's watched too many Al Capone movies. Not that you guys would know who Al Capone is, I don't think. Old gangster mobster guy, if you don't know who he is. But you see... That's not what's happening here. It's not cheap confession. It's not cheap repentance. You see, we don't have time to look at chapter 10 in detail, so read it when you get home. But just let me point to you to the the, the key verse. Have a look at verse 29. Chapter 10, verse 29. You see, what the people do is they, verse 29, they join with their noble brothers and they commit themselves with a sworn oath to follow the law of God given through God's servant Moses and to carefully obey all the commands, ordinances, and statutes of Yahweh, our Lord. And if you read the rest of chapter 10, what they do is they then outline what their commitment is, to live God's way, to live the way that he's called them to live. It's not cheap confession. They make a commitment to change. Uh, you see, and this is what we see with the flow of chapter 9 and 10. They, they know their sins, they confess their sins, uh, and then they cast themselves on the promises of God, knowing God's goodness, and then, and then they renew their commitment to live for God. And we said a confession prayer before, and we've got to be careful that when we say confession prayers, we're not just saying cheap words. You see, confession always leads to a commitment to live for God. Confession, true confession, leads to changed actions and trying to live for God as His people. But here's what I want to uh, here's where I want to stretch it with the last part of this sermon, and we'll finish with this. You see, what about us and our commitment to God? Because here's uh, the sad reality with Israel and uh, Nehemiah chapter nine and ten, and we'll see this in a few weeks' time. But by the time we get to Nehemiah chapter thirteen which is about 12 years after this time. So Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10, and then about 12 years later comes Nehemiah chapter 13. And when we get to Nehemiah chapter 13, we'll see that Israel have failed again. They've actually broken the exact vows they make in chapter 10 by the time you get to chapter 13. And and I've wrestled with this this week because at, at one level... I want to celebrate Nehemiah chapter 9 and chapter 10 because the people, they, they rightly confess their sins and they rightly recommit themselves to live for God. But at another level, it all seems in vain because by the time you get to chapter 13, well, they're back to their old ways. And so how should we read these chapters? What, what do they mean for us 
How should we understand them? Should we read these chapters and be encouraged in our commitment to live for God? Or, or do we read these chapters and think, well, what chance have we got? When we read the Old Testament, we just see Israel failing over and over again. And so how will it be any different for us? Why bother confessing our sins? Why bother trying to renew our commitments to live for God if it's all destined to be like that three-week exercise routine or the New Year's resolution that falls to the ground? Well, what's the point? And let's be honest, we've all had our commitment issues when it comes to living for Jesus. Sure, there have been times where things have been good, but perhaps at the moment they're not so good. Or perhaps it's in the distant past. Maybe there was a time where you were on fire for God and, and serving in all sorts of different ways and reading your Bible and praying. And maybe now you've become what Phil called last week uh, comfortably fruitless in your Christian life. So what chance have we got? Are we just like Israel? Well, here's where things are so different for us. You see, we live after the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. We belong to Jesus. And like we've already seen, we don't look into the future like Israel did, waiting for God to fulfill His promises. We look back to the cross and see that God has done the hard bit. We look back to the cross and see that God Himself came down in the person of Jesus and died for your sins and my sins, for all of our sins, for all those who trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so for us, there is no guilt for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no guilt. It's been dealt with. But more than that, because we belong to Jesus, God is our Father. And because we belong to Jesus, we have the Spirit of God. You see, do you remember what Jesus says in, in Luke chapter 11? It's up on the screen. He says this. And just, just notice how absurd Jesus' examples are uh, in this passage to make his point. So Jesus says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish we'll give him a snake instead of a fish. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, because we are all sinful, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, well, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And if you remember uh, that passage, it comes straight after Jesus' teaching of the Lord's Prayer. You see, for us... When we commit ourselves to Jesus as our Lord and King, we can pray asking God to help us to live for Him. We can pray and ask that the Holy Spirit works in us to live for God. You see, we can live for God. And we can commit ourselves to God in a way that Israel couldn't because we have Jesus. Because we're in Christ. Because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And not only can we ask for God's help, we should. See, chapter 9 is a prayer of confession, casting upon the promises of God. And for us, we do the same. We cast ourselves on the promises of God, knowing that He has forgiven us in Christ, and knowing that God is pleased to help us, help us to live for Him. See, we're not like Israel and Nehemiah chapter 13. And so what should we do? We should ask God to give us a great desire for His Word. We should ask God to grow us to be ever more like Jesus, His Son. We should actually ask God to help us to ask Him to pray more often for His help. And if Jesus is not yet your Lord and Savior, we'll ask God 
to reveal himself to you. So you too can know him as father because he's pleased to do that. Uh, Over the last uh, year or so, I've been praying that God would stop me being so materialistic. Uh, not that not that I'm obsessed with things, but but in our modern world, it's pretty hard not to be materialistic in some way, shape, or form. And so, what I've been doing is I've been praying that God would help me to feel less inclined towards things and spend more of my time and my energy and my money, for that matter, on the things of God. And God's answering that prayer, and it's good, and it, and it actually makes me more content. Because God knows how to give good gifts to His children. And I I see this in the lives of so many uh, people in our church. People at a variety of stages and ages. So people at a variety of ages in our church, be it older people or younger people, are living for Jesus and are committed to Him and are growing in Christ-likeness. And people at various stages of their Christian life, rather being a Christian for a long time or for a a short time, I'm seeing them changed. I'm seeing them being transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. You see, that is our privilege as those who belong to Jesus. We need not be fickle in our commitments. See, for us, that that old kind of saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, that's not true for the Christian. We have the Spirit. We have a Father who is pleased to give us good gifts. And so keep praying that kind of prayer for yourself and keep praying that kind of prayer for each other. See, Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10, we see that Israel rightly confessed their sins and they rightly recommitted themselves to God. But for us, what a joy that in Jesus we know that God has forgiven our sins, past, present, and future, and that in Jesus God is actually committed to our commitment to live for Him. So, how about I pray that God's Spirit would help us? To live more for Jesus. Let me pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word in Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10. We thank you that it teaches us to confess our sins before you and to cast ourselves upon your promises. And Father, we thank you that it teaches us to commit ourselves to you and to living for you. But Father, we give you great thanks that us who belong to Jesus have your spirit. And you are pleased to help us to grow to be ever more like Jesus. Please help us to be like him.